Amen. If you would please turn with me to the book of First Thessalonians. We'll be picking up in chapter 2. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 17 down to chapter 3, verse 5. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we, went, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would establish us in your inspired word this morning. Father, we know that there are many obstacles to the gospel. There are many obstacles that we experience in our own lives that impede us from growing in Christ-likeness and pursuing you and even just resting in Christ. Lord, remind us of precious truths this morning and encourage our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember last week, we spent some time talking about the pursuit of the kingdom and how the pursuit of the kingdom is an uphill struggle. It's running up the descending escalator. It's swimming against the current. That saving, genuine faith is a faith that is vibrant, that is a faith that isn't stagnant, but is always progressing in the pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that pursuit... Right, you can become exhausted. And most likely you know from personal experience that it can get really, really tiresome at times to live as a Christian, especially in a world that is anti-gospel. That there are times when the light of the gospel, the light of the hope of the gospel seems diminished by dark clouds. We experience affliction, we experience suffering, we experience external circumstances that we have no control over that seem to sort of weaken our faith. 
perhaps cause us to doubt, cause us to wonder, where is the Lord? Where is God? Where is my help? We certainly do experience times in our lives where our faith seems to grow weaker and weaker and weaker. There's a painful reality, and so as we turn to this particular passage in Thessalonians, which, by the way, will be the last sermon in this particular series. Next week, we'll actually turn to, for a few weeks, to the book of Jonah. But as we turn our attention to the topic of faith here in the book of Thessalonians, what we see here is that there is a concern for faith, concern for the faith of those in Thessalonica, the recipients of this letter, that they concerned for our faith as well. Concerned for our own faith, that we should be concerned for our own faith, but also concerned for the faith of others. You see, because genuine faith not only believes in the gospel of Christ and follows Christ, but genuine faith also loves his people. And so what I want to do this morning, give you is one particular way that we can love one another. But first, let's talk about the weakening of faith. And in this particular passage, we see at least a couple of different ways in which our faith might be weakened. So the Apostle Paul's written this letter to Christians, and he seems to be expressing this deep concern for the brethren. He's concerned for God's people. He's wanting to visit with them, to establish them, to encourage them, to see how well they're doing. But very plainly and quite interestingly, he says here in the passage that Satan has hindered us. There's a concern here that perhaps the tempter had tempted them. There's also a concern that perhaps he may have labored in vain, laboring in the preaching of the gospel, laboring in establishing them and encouraging them and discipling them and maturing them in their faith. And that if the tempter had gotten his hands on them, that perhaps he would have labored in vain if these Christians had made shipwreck of their faith and abandoned the faith altogether. So he was concerned. He wanted to visit with them, but Satan hindered his visitation. And there we see one of the ways in which our faith might be weakened is the fact that there is actually a real enemy against us. Now, I... I admit that I am naturally apprehensive in talking about the devil, in part because I don't want to come across as somebody who is overly mystical or somebody who is always blaming the devil for every bad thing that happens. But the scriptures make it quite clear in several places that there is actually an enemy that is against God's people. And that is the Satan. Ephesians says that he is your adversary. And he intends not only to weaken our faith, but also intends to make us abandon the faith altogether. So what do we know about this adversary? Well, we know, probably most obviously, that he is, to, he is opposed to the work of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 16, 21 
Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and be crucified and be raised on the third day. And it says that Peter took him aside to rebuke the Lord Jesus. I mean, who has that kind of audacity to rebuke the Lord Jesus? But Peter does it. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The adversary will always oppose the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have no doubts that he is at work in the world right now, specifically in the lives of missionaries and impeding them from certain from getting into certain places to reaching to certain people because he does not want people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but if you remember last week, we went to 1 Corinthians and how the preaching of the word of the cross is not only for the unbeliever, but it's also for the believer as well. That through the preaching of the word of God, God means to use that as a way of effecting salvation in your life, to bring you that much closer to the day of Jesus Christ, to help you to endure, to help you and strengthen you. And if that is the case, then we should expect that Satan, that the adversary will do whatever he can to impede that kind of work in your life and in my life. In Luke 8, there is the parable of the sower about how how seeds fall into different paths. And it tells us, that one particular seeds, these particular that some seeds fall along the path, and that there are those. And this is typical of those who might receive the word of God, and it tells us in Luke eight twelve that the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. He's the tempter. He tempts. Christians, he tempted even Jesus himself in the wilderness. We see from the story of Job that he tests Christians as well, that the difference between his testing and the testing of God is that his tests are always intended to make you doubt and question and even abandon the faith, while the testing of God is always intended to strengthen your faith and encourage your faith. He is a liar. Jesus says in 8.44, even the father of lies. And not only that, but he's powerful. 2 Thessalonians tells us that the devil himself can perform signs and wonders. That he is the great deceiver of the world, that he blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. He is an adversary. He is an enemy. He intends to weaken your faith and mind, and yet he is an enemy who's under the control of God. Because even while he tested Job, he only did it at the permission of God. Paul himself, he says that he received a a, a messenger of Satan to harass him, but we know from the scriptures that actually this was permitted by God in order to keep Paul from becoming a prideful person. The devil may not ever stop attacking Christians and hindering the work of the gospel. He will incite 
you to sin against God. He will tempt you to sin against God. He might harass you, lie to you, cause you to doubt. And perhaps the only way, the only way that we could ever expect for Satan to stop bothering us is if we do abandon the faith. And in that sense, his work is done. But even if he should continue to seek us out, to test us, to tempt us, and lure us away from the Lord, we must remember that he is an enemy on a leash. He can only go so far as God allows him to. In Pilgrim's Progress, analogy of the Christian, an analogy of the Christian faith, Christian comes before a particular path, and he stops. And it says in this story, looking very narrowly before him as he went, he espied two lions in the way. Now, thought he, I see the dangers that mistrust and timorous were driven back by. Two individuals who also came before him saw the lions and ran back. Then he was afraid and thought also himself to go back after them, for he thought nothing but death was before him. But the porter at the lodge, whose name was Watchful, perceiving that Christian made a halt as if he would go back, cried unto him, saying, Is thy strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained and are placed there for trial of faith where it is and for discovery of those who have none. Keep in the midst of the path, and no hurt shall come unto thee. Then I saw he went on, trembling for fear of the lions, but taking good heed to the directions of the porter. He heard them roar, but they did him no harm. Right? Sometimes the Christian walk is like that. The Bible says that the devil is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but he is a lion on a leash. He's under the control of the Lord himself. And God is the one who takes how far he can go. And a lion cannot harm us as long as God is with us. So you and I can experience the weakening of our faith just because of the very fact that we have an adversary that is always against us. Not only that, but we also experience many afflictions in our lives. King David is such a tangible example of what this was like. Being a king, having many enemies outside of his kingdom, even enemies within his own kingdom, even enemies within his own household, drove him to pray prayers like we see in Psalm 6 too. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. Verse 6, he continues, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye waits away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Ever been there before? Drenching your pillow with tears. Experiencing a weakening of your faith. Not knowing how you can endure another moment. 
we can experience that kind of affliction because of circumstances that happen to us that we may not have any control over. We can experience affliction through just internal circumstances as well. Again, King David is an example. He committed sins against the Lord. Many times in his life, that caused him great grief and great sorrow, pleading and asking for the Lord's forgiveness and his restoration and his kindness. We can experience affliction in so many different ways, even within the church. The Christians of 1 John is an example of that. They were questioning even their own faith because there were many of them who withdrew from them, thinking themselves to be Christian, and those that were left behind that they were not Christian. And John writes this letter to these Christians to assure them that they are sincerely followers of Jesus Christ. If you love the Lord Jesus and follow Him, and you love His people, then you can have confidence that you are children of God. We can experience the weakening of faith just knowing about persecution of brothers and sisters, seeing others discouraged in their faith can lead us to, for ourselves to be discouraged as well. For as long as we live in this world, our faith will always at times experience a weakening because of external situations we have no control over, because there is an adversary that seeks our destruction, and because, because of our own sinful choices when we fail to do what God calls us to do. Everyone experiences affliction, and everyone experiences deep discouragement, but especially so the child of God. Especially because his her love for God also makes that person an object of hatred by the world. And so there are these experiences where our faith grows dimmer, our faith grows weaker. And it is for these reasons then that we must encourage one another and strengthen each other in our faith. So then, talking, so then, transitioning now to strengthening the faith, we experience the weakening of our faith. But now let's talk about the strengthening of our faith. How do we strengthen our faith? Well, if we are to strengthen our faith and especially help to strengthen the faith of others, we must first know that all encouragement that we can give to others to strengthen them in their faith is grounded in Jesus Christ. And by the way, think of encouragement in this way, that encouragement is to receive courage, to give courage to another person, for us to receive courage. One of the most precious truths, one of the most precious promises in the entire Bible is that Christ will never lose a single one of those who are His. Any encouragement that we can give to others in the faith is drawn from our eternal security that we have in Jesus Christ. And we see this in John chapter 6. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. From that, we have great, great assurance that no matter the trials and the afflictions that we experience in this life, that God will keep us in the hand of Christ, that the adversary can bother us, he can harass us, he can cause us to, to, tempt, uh, to sin against the Lord, he can tempt us, he can do whatever he can to us, but ultimately we can never be lost because Christ will never lose all those whom he has saved. God sent his own son, his own beloved son, into the world, not only to save his people from their sins, but also to keep them unto eternity. Christ didn't shed his own precious blood on the cross so that you might possibly lose that salvation later. A savior that cannot save until the very end is not a savior at all. But those whom Christ saves, Christ keeps. And from this, we can draw out so much encouragement, so many precious truths. It means that you need never fear that Christ will somehow drop you. He's not sort of like juggling balls in the air that he might risk dropping one of them. No. Christ will never drop you no matter what you are going through. You need never fear that Christ will let you go. Even though our emotions might betray us and might cause us to think that God has somehow abandoned us in the midst of our affliction and suffering. No, John 6 assures you of the fact that God will never lose you and let you go in Christ. You need never fear that Christ will ever, ever forget about you. Right? It's not like the Home Alone holiday movies, you know what I'm talking about? That not, not only did they forgot their son once, but twice. No, God, Christ is not like that. You will never, ever be forgotten by Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus in a personal way, the encouraging thing about this precious truth is that, is that there's always more room in the hand of Christ. There's always more room. In that passage, it also even says that all those who come to Jesus, Jesus will never cast out. You need never fear being cast out because of who you are or because of your past. But Christ will never, ever cast you out if you come to him in faith and repentance. Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world, died on the cross at the hands of sinners in order to spare people from the judgment and wrath of God. Raised from the dead three days later, if you believe in him and follow him and trust in him, you can have this security in your life as well. You can have this assurance that Christ will never ever lose you no matter what happens to you in your life. That you have this assurance of eternal life with Christ. The hand that once grips the cross is now gripping the hand of every single believer.
Now, one question might be, especially if you're still remember what we talked about last week, that those, that genuine saving faith is always in the pursuit of God, is always striving after God, and how important that is. Well, one question is, how do you reconcile both of those things? If Christ keeps us to the very end, then what need is there for me to continue to pursue Him? What need is there for me to continue to swim against the current and run up the descending escalator? Why do I need to continue to move forward if Christ has already kept me and is keeping me and will keep me unto eternity? It is because those whom Christ saves and keeps, they persevere, endure to the very end. Those who are in the hand of Christ keep themselves in the hand of Christ by faith and by the pursuit of God. Otherwise, it will become clear that they will actually never end the hand of Christ. That's why Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, Abide in me. Abiding is something that we do. Because of our faith in Jesus, we have this permanent union with Jesus Christ, but it takes it is on our part to abide in Him. And abiding in Him is remaining in Him, remaining in the hand that wants to hold on to yours. Grip the hand of Christ as He is gripping yours by pursuing Him and believing in Him. So believers draw comfort from the reality that every single one of them is forever tethered to Jesus Christ. And from that, then, we also draw encouragement with which to encourage one another. I don't know if you realize this, but to encourage one another is actually one of the commands in the New Testament. And it is a way that we show love for one another. So let's look at some commands and examples in the Scriptures. In Romans chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes to the church in the, of, Paul writes to the church in Rome, "For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, perhaps by the devil himself, in order that I may reap some harvest among you." So Paul here is looking to encourage the church, but at the same time, he's also looking to be encouraged. Paul, that many consider to be the super apostle, the super missionary, the super teacher, even he himself needed encouragement. Romans 15.4, in this passage, just to kind of summarize, it tells us that these scriptures essentially were written for our endurance and encouragement. You realize that? And every time you open up the scriptures, God, through his Holy Spirit, through this inspired word, is intending to encourage your hearts. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul commands the church to encourage one another, specifically with the truth that Jesus will one day return and gather his people to himself. Hebrews 3.12 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Through the exhortation and the encouragement, this passage tells us, the exhortation and the encouragement of the saints is a means of grace that functions as a preventative measure against spiritual hardening that resists the glorious truths of God that comes through the deceitfulness of sin. So we prevent the deceitfulness of sin from hardening our hearts by exhorting and encouraging one another. And most sins... Most sins are obvious. Most sins we can tell, like, this is sin, this is not sin. Very few sins in the world are actually hard to discern. Most are pretty discernible. But then we come to a point that even when the most obvious sins don't seem so obvious to us, does it? Sometimes it seems like, oh, it's actually kind of a gray area. All it takes is one opinion, one thought, one secular wisdom or advice. All it takes is for sin to become that much more tempting and that much more enticing. And then you kind of begin to rationalize. Ever been there? We kind of rationalize and kind of wonder, is this actually really bad? Is this actually really sin? And that is why we need the fellowship of the saints. That is why we need word of encouragement from one another. Because we can't always objectively think things out. We can't always objectively rationalize. We can't always objectively look at the scriptures and see what it says. Because our hearts are deceitful. Sometimes we look for ways to rationalize what might be sin or an unwise decision. We need a brother or sister to be the voice of reason, telling us, teaching us, giving us to us the scriptures, exhorting us, helping us to see, no, this is actually a bad decision. No, this is actually wrong. No, this is actually sin. I mean, have you ever found yourself, after an unwise decision, after making a mistake, have you ever found yourself, after committing sin, asking yourself, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Right? You've gained your clarity in that moment that you didn't have before. A clarity that you wish you had before you committed the sin or committed that mistake or made that unwise decision. If only you had that clarity beforehand only had that wisdom beforehand, well, there's a collective clarity and a collective wisdom in the body of Jesus Christ. And so it's up to us, right, to seek that kind of counsel, to seek that kind of exhortation, to seek that kind of wisdom from others that we don't always have. Christian encouragement imparts Christian wisdom for those moments and those times when we lack wisdom. Christian encouragement also at times serves as sort of an alarm clock to sleeping and drowsing Christians. 
Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This passage tells us two things to consider. One is the fellowship of the saints. It says, do not neglect meeting together. It's not a suggestion. It's not an opinion. It's not an advice. It's not a recommendation. No, it's actually a command. Do not neglect meeting together. Now, I understand there are extenuating circumstances and situations. There's illness that prevents us at times perhaps even for certain seasons when we cannot get out of the home. That's understandable. I think there is grace. But there are other means of pursuing fellowship with others. But there are any Christians in the world in fear of persecution who cannot meet together. And when they do so, they do so in privately for fear of persecution, fear for their lives. There are some Christians in the world who don't know any other Christians and have no one else to meet with. Here at, in Western society, as Western Christians, we enjoy such liberties that give us opportunities to meet with one another. Not only that, but we have so much technology. We have phones, we have devices, we have Zoom. We, have, we are able to call others and FaceTime with others. that helps us to meet this particular command. Though the gathered body of believers, the gathering of the saints on Sunday morning, I think is irreplaceable, and nothing ever replaces the physical meeting of believers. But there is a command here to not neglect meeting together. We must seek each other out, in part because we need one another. We need encouragement the other thing about this passage is that it tells us that we ought to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works and encouraging one another. This is something that we have to be intentional about. Something we have to give thought and consideration to. How do I encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ Right, and we need to be, we always need to strive to be that kind of people. Because you find yourself in situations where, man, I could use some encouragement. You may not feel like you're in a place to encourage others, and I understand that, depending on situations, depending on trials that you're experiencing. And sometimes there's a tendency for us to withdraw from the saints. I need to be alone. I need to be by myself. But no. Do not neglect meeting with the saints. This is for you and this is for me. This is a means of grace. And we ought to consider how to encourage one another. Now, you might not consider yourself a natural encourager. I think there are particular people that God gifts uniquely with the gift of encouragement, that they just know how to encourage people. They just, it, just, it just comes out naturally. They can think of particular passages, particular truths, and they share that with people, and they are encouraged. 
And praise the Lord that we have people who have that kind of gift. But just because you don't have the gift does not exempt you from the command to encourage one another. So then the question is, how do we develop this habit or this skill of encouragement? And the primary way of doing that is from drawing from his word. God is so gracious. I mean, he's incredibly intelligent in that we didn't have to make it all up as we go. He gave us the scriptures. You want to know how to encourage somebody, just open up the Bible. To be a helpful brother or sister who encourages others, you must first be a reader and a student of the Word of God. If you are never in the Word, how do you expect to encourage others? I mean, if you yourself were struggling in your faith, if you yourself were struggling to find joy in the Lord, struggling with work, struggling in your marriage, struggling whatever it might be, wouldn't you not want somebody, a brother or sister in the Lord, to come and share with you an encouraging word from the Scriptures? You don't need to have the gift of encouragement in order to encourage others. You just simply need to love others. And they don't need to be specific Bible references. You don't have to be like, well, thus saith the Lord in Psalms chapter 6, verse 8. That's helpful, that's great, but it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't even have to be a specific verse quoted verbatim. It, it could just simply be a particular doctrine or particular truth drawn out from a particular sentence, a particular passage, a particular chapter, a particular book. One wonderful example is Jonathan Edwards wrote a letter to his daughter who was living far away. And he writes this in his letter to his daughter. Though you are a great way off from us, yet you are not out of our minds. I am full of concern for you. I often think of you and often pray for you. Though you are at so great a distance from us, and from all our relations, yet this is a comfort to us, that the same God that is here is also at Anahakwa, where, she's, where she was at. And that though you are out of our sight and out of our reach, you are always in God's hands, who is infinitely gracious, and we can go to him and commit you to his care and mercy. You are always in God's hands. Where does he get that from? He gets that from John chapter 6. As believers, you are always in the hand of God. And none can snatch you out of his hand. In addition to that, he's also drawing from the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere present. He says that God who is here is also the God who is there. What a wonderful encouragement coming from the Word of God. What a wonderful encouragement to you if you are a parent who have children who are out of the home. To rest in the confidence that the God who is here with you right now in this moment is also the same God who is with your children. William Cooper is a Christian who struggled with depression for 27 years of his life. And this is a deep depression. This isn't the kind of depression that makes you unmotivated to do anything. 
well, that is a bad kind of depression, but this was the kind of debilitating depression that keeps a person in bed all day long. The kind of depression that is debilitating, that is agonizing, that is frustrating, that is stressful, that is a means, that is, a, that is a, a, really a, a way of suffering. The kind of depression that led this man to multiple suicide attempts. The kind of depression that led this man to even have to be uh, put into an insane asylum. Now, William Cooper had an affectionate friendship with John Newton, who was a slave owner turned abolitionist, poet, hymn writer. John Newton would, and his wife would house William Cooper, help him in, during his debilitating seasons of depression, speaking words of encouragement to his life. He would visit him in the asylum. He would try to encourage him when he would make another suicide attempt. At one time, John Newton wrote to his dear friend, Though sin has abounded in us, grace has superabounded in him, in Jesus. Though our enemies are mighty, Jesus is above them all. Though he may hide himself from us at times for a moment, he has given us warrant to trust him. Even while we walk in darkness, and he has promised to return and gather us with everlasting mercies. Many say that the reason why William Cooper was able to endure so long through his life was because he had this affectionate friendship who often spoke words of encouragement to his life. It was a means of grace that God had given to William Cooper. I mean, without that means of grace, William Cooper would most likely have abandoned the faith. As we seek to encourage one another, maybe one particular, one tangible idea might be just to capture quotes like this that we read, that we hear about, put them in a notebook, put them in a Word document so that when you know that somebody is struggling in their faith and weakened in their faith, you can turn to that particular doc, that document or book and maybe find a quote that might speak well into a person's situation. You are saved by faith in Christ alone. You are, you are sustained by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But it is not a faith that is alone. There's a reason why Christ saves his people and commands them to form community. Because you and I need each other. Yes, the Lord will not lose a single one of those who are his. But have you considered that perhaps one of his means of keeping you is through the means of grace of the fellowship of the saints? So given the challenge that we all face in swimming against the current and running up the descending escalator, will you be the friend who provides stamina and encouragement to those who are weary? Given the great adversary that is against us, will you be the faithful brother or sister who provides strength of encouragement to those who might be tempted? Reminded of Moses, in one of the battles between Israel and one of the pagan nations, some of you remember this, when Moses would keep his hands up, God's people would continue to win the battle, but as those arms would continue to get heavier and heavier and begin to droop and become, again, 
lower and lower. God's people would lose the battle. And Aaron and Hur realizing this, they put a stone under Moses, had him sit down. And each one at his side would lift up his hands for him. So given the challenges, given the afflictions that we face in this life, will you be ready to lift up the hands of those who are exhausted, just as Aaron and Hur did for Moses? We spent several weeks talking about faith and the nature of saving faith. We've learned that saving faith has an object, and that object is the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As the object of our faith, we are called to follow him and we are called to love him. We have learned that we must place our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation because we lack a righteousness that God requires of all men. And that righteousness is given to us freely through faith in Christ. We have learned that faith requires us to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. For without the resurrection, there is no gospel. And the resurrection of Christ also guarantees our future resurrection that Jesus will keep us for if we will remain with him. We have learned that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, we are estranged from God. But in Christ, we are reconciled with God and even adopted as beloved children of God. We have learned that saving faith is not a stagnant faith, but a striving faith that is always making progress and always striving to pursue the Lord and his kingdom. And lastly, we have learned that saving faith loves God's people. And one way of loving God's people is by strengthening them in their faith, especially when their faith is weakened by sin, by persecution, and by affliction. So then let us strive to exhort one another. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And let us encourage one another with the precious truths of God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful and great promises that you have written for us in your scriptures. We thank you, God, because you are a good and gracious God and your steadfast love endures forever. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who may be weak in their faith this morning. God, and I ask that you would encourage them. Strengthen them, Lord Jesus. Lord, and help us as your people to encourage them and to strengthen them and to love them in ways that we can, in ways that your scriptures command us to. Lord, and help us also in our times of weakness to receive encouragement from the saints, to receive encouragement from your word. We thank you for your great promises. We thank you, Lord, for saving us into a community. And we pray that you would help this family, to thrive, to flourish, to bear fruit, and that we may increase in our love for one another, and that we may not shy from encouraging one another with the wonderful truths that are written for us in your holy word. We trust you for these things, since in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.